Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw and people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And we- I'm Aaron, and you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. And we got a very special guest with us today. Logan Lafferty is joining us for the first time. Yes, hello. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Leviathan. That's at MR Leviathan. Thank you very much for being with us, uh, Logan. We've tried to get you on a couple of times, and you've offered various uh, movies. And I think the last one I talked to you about was doing Rear Window after we saw it at the Alamo. That's um, correct. So it is excellent to finally have you on. Maybe during quarantine, we can rope you into one or two more things while you're not buying busy buying houses and, and working for Target and shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damn, is he an adult? Are you an adult, man? Unfortunately. Like grown up shit? Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, today we're going to be talking. Oh, wait. I think in a botched recording we talked about, or you mentioned that you were the resident Arnie expert, or you proclaimed to be. Yes, I am. Well, I'm a. I wouldn't say I'm an Arnie expert, but I would say I'm a total recall fanboy. I've seen this movie too too many times, probably. Definitely double digit times. No I think you tossed thing. around the word the number twenty. Yeah, yeah, give or take a couple. Is, I don't know how many movies I've watched twenty times. Maybe like Toy Story and Indiana Jones, but Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to your opinion and your perspective on this movie as somebody who's seen it so much that it would make my brain he rot. It. He doesn't like it at all. It turns out. I went from loving it to hating it and then back to loving it again. I've seen it so many times. <laughs> how, how many watches did it take before you started hating it? Uh, I never actually quite got to hate, but I, I started watching it out of habit. Have you seen, we'll get into it, but have you seen the 2012 one just to, just to do it? I did. And I really didn't like it. Okay, oh, man. Okay. We'll, we'll probably get into that. At Do you some remember point. The, yeah. the first time you saw it? What I will. I, I, saw this? I will say the f- the first time I saw the original or the remake. Uh, the original. The original I probably saw when I was like six or seven with my dad. Awesome. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good. We, we should we should discuss this in depth further sometime. But the, mm-hmm. like, there are good movies that are good. Like, seen at just too young of an age. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's exactly I saw, what I was thinking. It's the perfect yeah. movie for that. I saw exactly. uh, Monty Python's Meaning of Life at way too young an age. And once you see it once, my parents were just like, they've seen what's in it. I guess they can keep watching it. Like, yeah, <laughs> But it's too late. Yeah. And people being disemboweled in that movie. But, you know, okay, whatever. Uh, I had the same exact experience. Like, I watched a lot of movies at a very formative age with my dad. Total Recall being one of them. But the, I think the, the bar was set super high when I watched The Exorcist right around that same age. Holy shit. Yeah. And so it was like everything after that was seemed like small potatoes. I feel like that's actually traumatizing, you know, oh, not like that, not like a cool, Oh, I'm a young kid. I want to see the exorcist. I feel like fuck young kids saw the exorcist. Yeah, it absolutely was. 
it still creeps me out and I'm almost 30 years old. I was so gonna say, yeah, it's like, but everything else, like you said, was like a downhill battle, right? Because you had seen at a young age, maybe the scariest <laughs> horror movie. So everything else is like nothing. Yeah, exactly. And I, that probably explains my, like my bent towards horror, uh, the genre of horror in general too. That's right. You're a huge horror movie. Uh, I am a horror book guy, right? Big Stephen King fan too. Very much so. I have more than one Stephen King tattoo. Hell yeah. Wait, wait, share the tattoo. Now I'm yeah, curious, share the I, tattoos. Yeah, gotta know. Um, I've got one that is um, for The Shining. It's kind of got, it's like a keychain um, uh, for the room. Um, the keychain itself is like room 217 from the book. And then the, the key is actually an axe. Um, and then I, and then I have um, in the inside of my arm, uh, the, it was like, I think it was the original cover of it with the claws coming out of the stu- the sewer grate. Yeah. Best that's cover. the one I read. Yeah. Yep. So I, I, I have that one and I think that's it for Stephen King. Got the so, eyes of the dragon tattoo. I know. <laughs> eyes of the dragon joke. It's eyes of the dragon joke. So, uh, what, what total recall tattoo are you going to get now that you've, uh, you've been able to validate your love of this movie via a podcast. You've got some, some physical evidence of it. I would love to get, you know how you see on the internet, some like super, um, in, uh, detailed, uh, portraits. I would love to get a very detailed, well done portrait of that scene where Arnold's removing the bug from his brain. And, and just his <laughs> nose out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I've said before that uh, of all of the film ephemera in the world, I think the one I want most is Arnold's head uh, when he's out in Mars and his head's going to blow oh, up. Yeah. Uh, it's like the best thing. I, we talked about that while watching the movie, but that is like that shot is like the inspiration for so many like random Twitter like profile pictures of like anonymous people just harassing people in comments. I've seen either that him picture so many times. Yeah. Either him or Cohagen with the eyes like uh, hyperthyroiding out. Yeah. It's, it's pretty iconic. Uh, we should probably get around to actually yeah. talking about the movie. Um, so 1990 film by uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven. I'm, I'm glad that we brought up horror because there's a distinct link to horror, not just in like theme, but in actual production to this movie. Uh, Aaron, do you want to give us a quick summary of what this movie is about? Maybe you've made it better since before we screwed up the recording. Uh, no, I, I'm going to do it exactly the same. I have a patented Aaron Grossman summary here. You Total Recall. patented summary in the last recording, too. So just know that that's I'm just part repeating of my fucking bits. Yeah. Uh, Total Recall, 1990, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Um, science, science fiction film based on uh, the Philip K. Dick short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Um, it uh, stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Douglas Quaid, uh, set in the year 2084. He is a construction worker on Earth who has vivid dreams of Mars uh, and frequently during the day fantasizes about moving there, much uh, much to the disagreement of his wife, Lori. Um, he visits a company called Recall that promises to provide memory vacations for their clients. Essentially, they plant an incredibly accurate memory in the head of their clients, uh, you know, based on different locations and different kind of uh, identity changes about who this person was when they were visiting uh, the vacation spot. Um, and while they're working on Quaid to provide him with the secret agent, like super spy memory uh, on the planet Mars, they discover that he may actually be a super spy uh, whose memories were recently wiped. Uh, Quaid's memories start to slowly kind of trickle back and he struggles to make sense of his new identity. You are disgusting. No, Arnold, that was a, that was a good summary, man. I thought I did a good job there. What's the problem? Disgusting. Jesus, man.
All right. Well, fuck you. Shut up. He's got you there. Arnold tells he you ma- to shut up. You shut up. I, he made know. he made some points. I got to be honest. Uh, so we uh, we can't really talk about this film without talking about the um, the soundtrack, uh, which is like a really I think great entry point into like the tone of this movie. Uh, who was? Damn it! I should have pulled up the note. Uh, the the composer of this composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith. Thank you so much. And his score is very much um, like it's a mix of symphonic and very futuristic sounds, but it's not quite as like iconic or I guess synthy as a lot of uh, like eighties and nineties. I'm thinking like Vangelis from um, Blade yeah, Runner. I was kind of surprised that you started with the soundtrack because I was, I've seen this movie not as many times as Logan, certainly, but uh, I think five times. And I, I don't remember a lot about the soundtrack. Uh, well, the reason I bring it up, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I I did exactly what I said we're not supposed to be doing. But the reason I bring it up is because it's one of those things that like on watching only on watching it again, like this is my third time maybe watching it. Uh do I realize how like good it is, how fitting it is? I guess Logan, your perspective on it having seen it so many times, is that an element of the movie that sticks that like sticks with you as as being particularly good? Yeah, I actually made a note of it. I think I mentioned I have seen it so many times that the soundtrack was something that I just kind of became deaf to just, I was so used to it. And then this was the first time I really went back and watched it with an analytical eye. And the the soundtrack is pretty indelible. Um, it, I don't know what else really to say beyond that, but the, the soundtrack acts as almost another character in the movie. Yeah. I, I think I agree uh, that I, I just find it interesting that like, Nobody remember Jerry remembers Jerry Goldsmith's name where they might remember Vangelis or definitely remember like John Williams and Danny Elfman, like the really iconic scores of the eighties and nineties in, in cinema stick out. And like, it's usually quality that goes with name, you know, like you rarely watch a movie and it's a nobody name and it's really good. And it's like associated with being a really good movie. But in this case, it sticks out to me as like, it fits very well, both with like some of the themes of the movie and with the general setting. I think you're uh, you're downplaying the importance of a man Goldsmith. I, yeah, I was going to say he's pretty pretty accomplished uh, uh, composer and conductor here. Didn't he I don't mean to call him. Uh, I'm going to control F alien here. I don't I don't mean to call yes. him a, a a nobody, but like, is that a name you knew off the top of your head? <laughs> heard of it? You're lying. I've heard of it. No, I've heard but of it. But you name. wouldn't you wouldn't have been able to identify him as like the composer of Alien or the composer of Total Recall. I mean, is what I'm saying. That is true I, in my case. That yeah. Is, yes, that is true. Certainly not on the same level as Vangelis, but Okay, so the term know. I meant to say not was not nobody like it, it was it was household name. I think John I think of John Williams, sure. Danny Elfman, uh, Philip Glass. Names. Yeah, as as household names. Um I think that the thing that you said about the soundtrack that you and Logan both said about the soundtrack uh that makes a lot of sense to me is that um I think Logan you called it indelible I would I would uh characterize it that way as well and say that like I think the reason why Jason you might think it's a good way in is because that's how I would characterize the whole movie right is that like it's such a complete package it's so self-assured and so um confident in its in its direction uh and in all of the pieces that make it up I agree. It's very well-rounded. It's very like strong in many areas that I guess the points where it might be weak, you don't really notice as much. Uh, to that end, I want to start about like with the tone this this movie sets. Um, the a very opening shot and the first few scenes are sort of wrote, uh, you know, r- routine 
day in the life type things, which this guy must be one of the highest paid construction workers in the universe. Uh, because he has like this penthouse suite. I mean, we like story-wise, you find out that it's not the reason that he has a penthouse suite, but then he's shown, you know, working at the, with, with the Jack Har- jackhammer on the job site. Um, but like the way that this movie sets that up, uh, and like the, the thing that it purports to be, it eventually switches. Uh, I want to let Logan chime in there. I was only going to say that I could watch Arnold jackhammer all day. His biceps don't quit. It fucking rules, man. It's yeah. so good. He looks like that thing. He looks like he could like pick his teeth with that thing. Can you imagine being just like a, just a, just a average bodied 49 year old construction worker and you're fucking jackhammering away on a bunch of soil and you're fucking working next to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'd be pissed. I would hate that shit. Like, I don't I'm know how I'm supposed to with this dude. Yeah. Every time performance reviews come around, my boss is like, oh, you could be a little more like uh, Arnold over there, you know, probably do your job a little bit better. Yeah, I wonder how. Stop being such a bitch. <laughs> I wonder how inferior Harry really feels if he was just Harry. Uh very always both the character <laughs> and this this one. Uh, um, we uh we made the the joke about that, but I like I I think that that this is one of my favorite Arnold deployments in any movie too. Uh, just in establishing that tone that you just um suggested jason which is that like like i said that this movie is a really good complete package and really confident in its direction but that direction is not what you would think it would be this is not a straight sci-fi movie right like it's so distinctly a verhoven movie um and i think that that using arnold in that way sort of deploying him strategically with the like the jackhammer um arms and like how unbelievable he is in the everyman role that he's ostensibly performing at the beginning of the movie is actually like really perfect for the the slanted sort of point point of view that this movie is is communicating yeah and it i won't say that it was like I, i'm not i'm no arnie uh archaeologist uh, anthropologist for his filmography but like it was, if I remember, like seen as a little bit of a turning point for his career, this movie, because it's uh, not straight comedy and it's not straight action. It's like satire. And it does a lot in the character too, to uh, like make him, I guess, I guess die hard him a little bit where like it humanizes his character a bit. It like, it's very aware of Arnie's uh, career to that point And like the kind of characters he was, he was used to playing where he's somewhat more I don't want to call him vulnerable because he's still a superhero in all senses of the word, but he does like he takes his lickings. He is beaten down occasionally. Like the tone that this movie sets from the outset is like really lived through in that character. I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it works with the Verhoeven comedy, right? Like Verhoeven's always somebody that, that has put just kind of not slapstick comedy, but, but pretty, clear comedic elements in his films next to some more uh, kind of, you know, serious thematic content. And I think it works that Arnold is the character to do that because the beginning of the film, before you know what's going on, you're thinking like, Oh, why is Arnold a construction worker? And then the first twits hit the first uh, twist hits you and you're like, Oh, it, it makes total sense that they're like, what are we going to do with this super soldier spy guy? Who's like the buffest dude in the entire world. Like, what are we going to get him to do as just like a member of the population? And it's like, okay, yeah, I guess he's a construction worker or what have you. We'll just monitor him closely. Um, it's, it's quite funny. I think. Yeah. And back to the Verhoeven point, I think, and this might be something that maybe I just didn't pick up on in the multitude of times I've seen it, but, 
watching it and the like you said jason they're in that penthouse and there's that um almost a, a full wall tv as they're eating breakfast and they're watching the news and um they're they're talking about protests over this mine and then they <laughs> this is where i think verhoven comes in overtly by when the newscaster says um, minimal use of force was used against these protests as these um, military types are using a machine gun, uh, machine guns on these protesters. Yeah. It's very, very Starship Troopers at that point, right? Like, right. Like media having one, like reporting one direct narrative, right? Sort of propaganda through mainstream media, uh, Infowars. Uh, We're supported today by Infowars. The, um, like the, that really like feeds into the first time I saw this movie was like, I didn't catch up on Arnie movies until I was probably 16 or 17, probably much later than a lot of the folks on this podcast or even listening to this podcast, but it was an old VHS tape. And the first time I remember watching it, I just was completely flabbergasted. It was also my first, um, Verhoeven film. And, uh, the, like the way that this movie establishes itself, not only with like the narrative twist of, uh, you know, now his friends are, you know, his enemies. He's at the plot of a, con- or the, he's at the center of a conspiracy plot, uh, all these things, but also working that like social and political satire in is just such a distinct flavor that now is sort of ubiquitous. Like you might see that in a lot lesser films, but I imagine in 1993 years before I was born, it really got to be, uh, or, or it must've been really, really interesting to see that play out. Yeah, it's interesting that you said you were flabbergasted by it because, like, I totally think I relate and understand that. Um, I didn't have that exact experience, but like, this is this is a movie that is coming out of so many different contexts and sensibilities and like histories of uh, of action media, right? Where like it, like you said, it's a it's sort of a turning point for Arnold's career, except that it, in my mind, it's sort of a culmination of his career because, um, in my opinion, he's always been uh, a sort of meta exaggeration. Um, ironic extension of the action hero like even in the 1980s with like predator and stuff i think that was always his um his appeal is that he was like a comic um extreme of what we thought of when we thought of an action hero uh to the point where he was sort of like iconography in that sense and like the verhoven irony is such a manifestation of a certain idea about how we feel about sci-fi and how we feel about action movies that Verhoeven was so well positioned to um, create in this movie. But it is like, like without that context, this is sort of, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because this is, it's sort of an ironically um, unapproachable movie in that way, despite being ostensibly such a bombastic uh, over the top and, and straightforward experience. Yeah, uh, to fill in the blanks for what uh, you guys have been talking uh, about here, the looking, I've got Arnie's filmography up in front of me, and it, like, from what I can tell, and I'm not an Arnie expert, I'm at best probably third uh, out of those of us here uh, behind Logan and Harry, who's who've seen a, a lot of Arnie movies. Um, but, uh, you know, we mentioned, uh, you know, the 80s, Arnie kind of had his first run of what we would maybe consider Arnold movies. Um, you know, you get the Terminator, uh, Commando in 85, Raw Deal in 86, and then Predator and the Running Man in 87. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, peak, uh, Arnie work back to back to back. And then there's this, uh, kind of, I don't want to call it a dry spell, but he, he pivots a little bit into what seemed to be co-led comedies, uh, first with Belushi and then with Danny DeVito, uh, in the late eighties. And then he 
turns around and uh, and Total Recall comes out, and it like we've said, it it is it has that Arnie flavor, but it's coming from the the mind of an of an auteur, if that's not too bold to say. And then he kind of spins from there, and you know he you get your your kindergarten copy, you get Terminator Two, you get the the second coming of what we would consider you know Arnie. Not really an Arnie Renaissance, but his second volume of we of called it the Silver Arnie. Age, right? Did we? Okay, um, but yeah, uh, I don't know if that paints anything more clearly uh, or not. But uh, I think the the thesis that Total Recall was a sort of uh, n- not insignificant turning point in his filmography is correct. To your point, well, maybe not to your point, but since you brought it up, Cody, um, I did happen to notice there were two instances that I could directly tie to Twins, which is another Arnie movie that I absolutely love. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah, That was the DeVito one. Yes. I I remember, Logan, you walked into the office once with, was it the vinyl soundtrack to that film? It was. It was my, maybe my most prized possession. I found it. I found it in an antique store in North Dakota and uh, for $5, (laughs) it's the vinyl soundtrack of Twins. That's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Nice. Nice. Uh, Yeah, Twins came out two years before this. That was the last Schwarzenegger film before this came out, which, you know, if you're, if you're taking a look at his you know, this is an action movie, right? But if you're taking a look at his career as he changes from an action movie hero, you know, commando uh, to being more of like a comedic leading man or like co-leading man, um, you know, there's twins. And then there's this film where he's kind of fulfilling that role for the first 20 minutes of this movie, right? Um, before it it does descend, I guess, further into sci-fi and, and just kind of being a straight up action film at the end. Um, it's it's like a really it's a really perfect manifestation of the sort of myriad appeals of Schwarzenegger, right? Where like um, I guess to put my cards on the table, I get in trouble for saying that so often. But uh, I guess I'm <laughs> one of one of the Arnold experts here. Uh, in college, me and my roommates watched every single one of the movies that he had made up till that point. Um, and uh, this the sort of um, portrait of Arnold that emerges, particularly given his his personal and political life um, before and since, is is really fascinating. Uh, and it's it's one that that is like this isn't an original point that I'm making, but like there's this sense that people have when they don't know Arnold Schwarzenegger very well that he's just like a meathead, right? That he's just like a silly Hollywood. Uh, weightlifting bodybuilder that is actually not the case at all and like the actual Arnold Schwarzenegger is a much more complicated and fascinating human being Um, he is a person who has mastered the particular art of self-branding and self-promotion to an extent that very very few people are ever capable of Um, and I think that you see a lot of that in performances like this Oh, definitely. Uh, when I said that it was a, like something of a turning point, again, I was not saying that from a place of expertise, but I mean, like, it seems to be the one that people hold up when they think of perfect mixes of his action career and his comedy career, like that, that is, that's going to be his lane from now on. Uh, I, I, I'm glad that you brought up Harry, his, um, like the awareness that he has about his own, like brandability and his own his, himself as a marketable thing. Uh, I don't know if anybody else read on the uh, up a little bit on the history of this movie, but uh, essentially the only way that it got made is because Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to make it enough. 
uh, he had unsuccessfully tried to get uh, the a former producer uh, of the film before it was made to get him to star in it. He was turned down at that point, and then that producer, uh, his company folded, leaving the rights up. Arnie then stepped in and said, "Hey, uh, I'll I'll be in this." He convinced another production company to put up the money for it with a with his own salary of ten to eleven million dollars plus fifteen percent of the profits from the movie. Incredibly business savvy, one, and then two convinced Verhoeven to like make it because it didn't have a, a director attached. The fact that like, I guess it gives me a new like way, a new prism through which to look at the movie is thinking about how it's not just a good Arnie movie; it's like a movie that owes its entire existence to Arnold He's Schwarzenegger. Essentially, the producer, right? Yeah. In in a, well, I don't know if he contributed much like financially, but yeah, definitely he, without his like star power, without his arguing, without his business sense, and I don't mean to laud him as a per, as a person. He's a Republican, so you know he can burn in hell. But the idea being that he's able to, uh, like, successfully argue at that stage of his career that he was a big enough name to sell an entire movie when that wasn't even supposed to exist at that point. Nuts, nuts to me. I mean, Harry, you, you like, I don't know how much humor was intended here, but you use the word deployment. You were like the deployment of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I just imagine like Paul Verhoeven, like getting a kill streak in Call of Duty and like, I'm calling in Schwarzenegger for that's this. That's exactly film. how I picture it. And it, it's like, that's kind of how it works. Like, I don't know, you know, yes. I don't know how much like historically this matches up with the production of the film, but looking at it as someone in 2020, every single film with Schwarzenegger in it, you look at it as maybe more than most, if not all other action movie stars, you're like, oh, how is Schwarzenegger being used in this film, right? Like you have films like Last Action Movie Hero, um, Total Recall, like films sorry. where he is... Sorry. Aaron, I need you to back up. What's the name of that movie? Oh, don't do this to me, man. Last Action Hero. Uh, Action I, Hero again, I, I owe my whole watching of that movie, my whole knowledge of that movie to Logan. It's... You're it's welcome. Good. It rules, dude. Everyone rules. <laughs> Regardless, also, yeah, Harry. It's another great example of... Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger being put up against villains that are so completely underneath him. Like in the, in this movie, he takes on a, a Michael Ironside, right? Isn't that, uh, yeah, Michael that's Ironside. The, that's the main villain that he's supposed to be, uh, like competing against in that movie. I think it's Charles dance. Uh, it's, uh, no, it's, it's what's, it's, what's his name from, um, from Brazil. Uh, isn't and, he in Thrones? Uh, shit. I'll look it up while you guys keep talking. Isn't that dance? Um, I, I don't know the actor's name. I think I know who you're talking, like the big guy with the axe, right? Wait, isn't um isn't the guy from Ronin also in there? Uh what's his name? The Robert De Niro? <laughs> okay. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Uh we should probably start talking about the, the movie itself again. Um it moves for for me like it's got a really big turning point, not just like at the beginning where we, where he goes to recall and discovers that, uh, you know, the memories that were, that he, that he's trying to plant in his head are already there. Uh, the existence of like, uh, of a, of a, of a life before the life we knew, but like side note, the moment at which we start this movie is probably the moment at which his like actual life as Dennis Quaid started, right? If you think about the the lore of this movie that all of his memories were implanted, he probably woke up literally the morning after being released into the wild with Sharon Stone, right? Well, to the extent that any of this is true at all, man. 
Okay, we got to we got to assert that something's true. But yeah, like the, when I saw this movie this time, I was thinking like, okay, so I know that the twist is that uh, you know, not everything is as it seems and there are elements here that you can't quite trust. So then I thought like, what proof do we have that anything happened between Sharon Stone and uh and Arnold Schwarzenegger before like they wake up at the very beginning of the movie with that cute, you know, Saturday morning pillar pillow talk. I mean, I think I could be misremembering this, but I believe one of the henchmen that he beats up says that he's only been in his current state for like a few weeks, max, right? Six weeks. Yeah. Six. Okay. So that's, that's the answer. That's the answer that I, I must've missed that line, but like very shortly after the actual thing happens, we start the movie. Uh, a, very vaguely, uh, not quite related question that I had uh, akin to that was um, when Sharon Stone was practicing tennis in her apartment, is that because that made sense for the person she was uh, pretending to be uh, in Quaid's eyes, uh, that it made sense for her to be practicing tennis? Or did the real person, Sharon Stone in the movie, I'm forgetting all sorts of names. Did she, who, which version of Sharon Stone wanted to practice tennis? Makes she's just, That's she's just trying to work on her. Yeah. Just trying to work on her backhand, man. I think that the movie well, makes she was really serving, but yeah. Oh, it makes you think uh, that maybe all of our desires are maybe driven by something else. And maybe we're, we're not really controlling. And maybe the fabricated self and the real self are not so different because in fact, there might not be any real self that is not fabricated at all, but just different levels and tiers of fabrication. Logan, are you having fun yet? Same wavelength. (laughs) Uh, No, like for for Logan, sorry, uh, Jason, I didn't mean to jump on you, but I really wanted to know um, why this movie 20 times, Uh, I guess maybe that's a good place to start. Um, Well, yeah, like we talked about before, when when you see certain movies at a certain age, there are a lot of really like indelible, not to use that word again, but images that that kind of stick with you. Um, and so I always, in my mind, when I think Total Recall, I think of when he's first lowering his head into the recall machine. I think of when he's removing his bug. I think of um, uh, the whole crowd in the last resort. They're, they're just scenes that I think about a lot. And so I would continue to revisit it. And actually I should say, just generally speaking, I love the aesthetic of eighties and nineties movies of what they think the future is going to be. Um, and so I, I think that's why I came to revisit, revisit it a lot is because sure. It's probably a lot of nostalgia, but I think, um, it, it, grew into one of those movies that I would just fall back on. And then also in college, uh, it was like one of my five go-to movies when I would smoke weed. So, uh, that's a great movie for that. Yeah, absolutely. So that definitely boosted the view count. That's, that's really, I think really important backstory. I cannot imagine watching this movie in any state of impairment beyond like uh, half a beer deep. (laughs) Otherwise I'd just be fucking lost. Very true. Um, to uh, something you said, Logan really uh, jumped out at just like the idea of scenes being so concretely ingrained into your memory. Um, I, I don't have that same experience with this movie only because the first time I saw it was a couple of years ago. But I bet if I had watched it earlier in life, um, things like th- this movie is very textured. Uh, and feel free to agree or disagree with that. Um, but like the down to the the prosthetics and the practical effects 
Um, so like having you know, first seen this movie a couple years ago and then again the other night, um, like the the textures were something that that never left me. Um, the, the you know the production design and, and the scenes themselves as well. Uh, but there is something uh, very um, strong uh, about the movie, sensory speaking, that that never left. No, textured is a great way to put it. I think that's exactly what my mind goes to is, um, yeah, the, the practical effects I think are really cool in here. Like we talked about the, when they're exposed in the, the, the Mars atmosphere and like even the Johnny cab and just like when he's talking to the Johnny cab and the way that his face moves. And those are the kinds of things that really stick in my mind. And that's what always brought me back to this movie. It was just on a purely like aesthetic textual textural level i always really enjoyed it yeah i i don't mean to jump in line ahead of harry but like since you're mentioning all these moments logan that stuck with you 20th times through what are the moments then like watching it again are you surprised by moments that like appeal to you even if you didn't remember them specifically is it like when you see quato's weird head pointing up and he says uh open your mind six times in a row over the course of like three minutes it's literally like a three minute scene where he just says open your mind again and again are those moments like are you able to identify those moments as you're going that are like oh i see why this didn't stick with me i see why my mind pushed this scene out so that it could make more see more space for the two weeks scene where he's pulling his face apart as as the woman yeah i mean there were certain things that I maybe have glossed over and then looking back at it last night, I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like the, I feel like the voice to face relationship with Quato was very disturbing. Like, uh, it looked like, uh, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe how Quato looks, but his voice was like that of like, uh, like a, a weird porno narrator. If porn had narration, he would narrate it. (laughs) Open and, your butt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Open your legs. Um, <laughs> and then I also noticed, I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but a lot of like scenes ended with extended um, exchanges of looks, like specifically when um, Michael Ironside, I can't remember his character's name, but when he shoots um, the the glass dome after Arnold's, mask is revealed and everyone gets sucked out and they have to shut down the doors. He's trying to get the guy to the security guy to open the doors. And then he goes, I can't, they're all connected. And then they just look at each other for like, for like maybe three seconds. Yeah. For like maybe two to three seconds longer than feels natural. Like there's a lot of that in that movie where the gazes just hold a little weirdly long before the next scene starts. Uh, it's, it's great for that. It's great for uh, Michael Ironside, who is of course ripped the, um hit for like glowering but yeah like i i also noticed that there's there's like there's a there's like a disquieting uh pacing to that sometimes uh there are also just scenes that are very quiet like and that that are just in rooms that look very constructed that give the whole thing like a uh an almost soapy texture to it like it it feels like like you're looking at it and you're like i'm looking at something that is so clearly constructed um and that really works for me about this movie to sort of speak to the construction too you can really feel the production in the production of this movie uh in a really interesting way you know when that came through like strongest to me was the scene where uh the doctor 
comes in with Sharon Stone and says, like, it's all been a hallucination. We're all hallucinations. You have to come back. You have to red pill yourself and come back to reality or get a lobotomy and have it forcibly done. Like that scene has very strong like coloring of the carpet that's like very vivid in my mind the carpet even though like it's all very earthy tones the backgrounds the windows and everything it's just really really strong like production design and and coloring uh that and and it's also like a showcase like like logan was saying for those really long like takes quiet takes like the music in that scene again maybe going back to the fact that the music made an impression during while watching but completely leaves my mind once i stop watching the film uh, the music in that scene does a whole lot to like fill the space without being like loud and obno- obnoxious and, and annoying. It's just a very quiet, tense moment in a very loud, boisterous, obnoxious, funny, violent film. I I think we can all agree, come to think of it, that the reason that the music, uh, it, it, rather you claim, Jason, the music made such an effect on you is that uh, you're just trying to shoe ha- shoehorn in uh, the podcast that you produce. Uh, that's That's about music. So kudos, Jason. What, uh, what podcast is that? Uh, I believe it is called Mintrax. Is that correct? Uh, I might have to go back to my notes. I'm not sure about that. I don't want to do that on air. I don't want to take Logan's time too much. Um, All right. Well, just just to, just to be safe, everybody listening to this, look up uh, Mintrax uh, on your podcast listening uh, software device and uh, subscribe. You have to mention us on that podcast, though. It's, uh, I, I got to listen to the most recent episode, though. But uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, to, to go back to something that, that Logan said earlier that, that I really, uh, agreed with. And, and one of my favorite things about this movie is that this movie more than almost any other movie I can think of really epitomizes in my mind, what an eighties to nineties movie looks like. It's just like, when I think about the very particular, uh, colors and framing and set construction and and acting style and clothing uh, and music and and all elements of production when i think about what that looks like in like a big budget 80s movie i'm thinking about this movie and furthermore i actually think and like i i have no way to back this up right but like I think that this movie is is recreating that feeling very intentionally. I think that this is a movie that wants you to look at it and feel like it is a sci-fi movie from the 1980s. Um, it, it's like it's so deliberately itself. Um, and I, I find the irony, like in all of uh, or a lot of Verhoeven's very best movies like Starship Troopers or uh, RoboCop, that, that the irony is so perfectly deliberate at all points in this movie. Um, Aaron, you know something about the the production of this movie, right? <laughs> that that sort of speaks to that a little bit, uh, well, I think. Oh no! Uh, yes, I do. Um, well, more specifically, my personal uh, history with uh, the story of the production of this film and how it has been ruined by the podcast Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. Um, to to kind of keep it a little brief, uh, Total Recall was largely filmed in Mexico City. Uh, mainly for budget reasons, but also uh, because some of the locations kind of fitted the vibe of what they wanted, Um, specifically the Mexico City Metro, uh, a lot of the more dystopian scenes in this film, and some of the props used were from Mexico City Metro that was built. um, There's actually a, if you look up the book, uh, Spectacular Mexico Design Propaganda in the 1986 Olympics, uh, it is a book by a guy named uh, Luis Castaneda, who I saw a 
speech uh, from when I was in college in one of my seminar classes. And he talked about the 1968 Mexico City uh, Olympics and how a lot of the sinography of those Olympics were created uh, with a very certain kind of style to them and how that the same person who worked uh, on the kind of the basic aesthetics of that Mexico City Olympics also worked on the Mexico City Metro and a lot of the signage there and how it was supposed to uh, the Metro was supposed to kind of, you know, distill down a culture and a country with a large history to basically be very um, kind of understandable uh, to tourists while also maybe staying true to the history uh, of that country. And um, I guess it also works very well as looking very dystopian, right? Um, and that this kind of, you know, this cultural heritage being distilled down into this very understandable uh, form um, is apparently perfect for uh, showing off this kind of dystopian Mars. And um, I thought that was very interesting. And I was using that as a fun fact, primarily at parties uh, for most of my college career and a little bit after. And then someone said to me like, oh, you mean like the, the 99% Invisible episode? And I was like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, yeah, they, uh, they made an episode about it. I think they even interviewed the dude who gave that lecture and uh, I no longer have any fun facts. Um, but uh, yeah, you can, you can look up. There's a yeah, 99% invisible episode about it. There's also an, uh, an article on their website called the architecture of evil uh, dystopian mega corpse in speculative fiction films that takes a look at, uh, you know, Blade Runner, RoboCop, total recall, kind of all of that. So um, yeah, that's my personal history with that. I don't have a fun fact on the production, but I did do a little research before watching the movie and I was given how many times I've seen it. I was actually somewhat stunned to find that um, total recall spawned a novelization, a video game, TV series, comics, and an aborted sequel that was based on uh, another Philip K. Dick story, uh, minority report. Did any of you know that? What? What? Wait, minor. I don't understand. There was going to be a sequel to total recall that was based on Minority Report? Exactly. And Arnold was going to be in it, and it just never happened. What oh the God. fuck? Can you imagine Minority Report with fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger at the helm? I can't stop picturing it. I want this more than anything I've wanted in a long time. <laughs> Tom Cruise is an interesting corollary to the, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger approach to meta irony uh in your leading man though so there there's there's a funny sense in which like there's some uh cross yeah it's it's about it's about equivalent right like i I don't know if it's got the same like career staying power but definitely an equivalent yeah there's also the the novelization was written by uh extremely horny uh fantasy author piers anthony has anybody read any piers anthony books here no, but it no. sounds like you have. Uh, I read a lot of Piers Anthony when I was younger. He's most famous for his uh, fantasy series set in the fictional realm of Xanth. Uh, it's like there's like 40 books in the series and every single book gets a little more horny. So you're like the eighth book in the series <laughs> and it is like completely inappropriate in every single way. And it's like I think he actually did just switch to writing like softcore porn uh, novelizations. Um, but yeah, he did the the novelization of this film and i bet it's very bad because he's not a good author but i read a stupidly large amount of his stuff growing up probably not good on my development actually uh, if i'm going to be honest 
So um, to to go back to the production real quick, uh, sorry to to um, get us away from the horny author, Aaron, but uh, I just really I love that story as like a really funny, perfect metaphor for what this movie's doing in that it's like it's like kind of a almost a little bit mean, uh, a little bit a sconce metaphor uh, that that they set this dystopian movie in this thing that was ostensibly once utopian, but actually had sort of a detrimental effect on the uh, environment and surroundings. Um, and it's, but even more importantly, it's like this movie is like a production within a production within a production. And all of those productions are a little bit stilted and a little bit self-conscious and very self-aware, right? It's like literally they set it in this, this, um, production that w- that was originally intended to look different from life in an important and funny way and now they're using it for the same purpose but for the like inverse uh effect where it was like it was supposed to look utopian now it looks dystopian but whatever it is it's always a production it's always like a bunch of concrete that doesn't look like anything anywhere else and i think that like that that sensibility carries over to so much of this movie and includes the deployment of arnold right where like like you had said aaron when you make an arnold movie the first thing you're doing is making an arnold movie above and beyond everything else the best arnold schwarzenegger movies kind of understand that they kind of understand that once you cast arnold schwarzenegger you're not making the same movie that you would have made like sans schwarzenegger um and this movie embraces all of that to produce something that is so different from what it could or should be on page. Where like the the script of this movie and the making of it are such wildly different things in a way that that only Verhoeven could co- kind of conceive in my mind in a really fascinating way. Yeah, we've spoken a lot about how this is very much an Arnie film. Uh, I think we should talk a little bit about how it's also very much a Verhoeven film. We talked, uh, Logan touched on it earlier a little bit when he was talking about the intro news broadcast that happens while Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sharon Stone are having breakfast in their penthouse apartment with beautiful views of the whole city. Um, and how it's just kind of like a, a tiny little mini, uh, I, I don't know, a little vertical slice of what really makes it a Verhoeven movie where he's contrasting like the uh, upper class and the exhaustion of resources with the, uh, with the downcast, with the uh, f- people who've been forced into a lower class and directly like uh, victimized as as a result of it. Once once the whole crew gets onto Mars, we find out that like it's a strictly heavily segregated population between uh, the wealthy upper class and the lower class that's been oppressed by. Um, I guess I don't know if there's if there's any like story built here, but it just so happens that like a certain subset of people are in an area of the settlement that has like bad radiation shielding and they've result and, and the result is that there's a lot of uh, uh mutation physically um that i don't know one leads to the other or chicken or the egg but in for some reason now these people are also the uh lower class they are the um the people who uh resort to alternative forms of income they are the people without steady income they are the people who are at most at risk of losing the resources they need like clean air uh and that's where this movie sort of makes a, a twist for being more of a verhoven movie without really sacrificing or losing its its arniness uh, and i wanted to know i wanted to see like just gauge the pool on how like how you felt that turn happened i find that it's really smooth and almost unnoticeable until it's fully like in frame until it's fully focused on but i wanted to see if the whole if the rest of the crew feels at all the same way 
Um, well, I, it's interesting because I, I don't know if I felt that there was much of a turn at all. Um, one of the more interesting things about this movie, uh, to me is that, that like it, that felt like another leveraging of a, of a trope, right? Like I, the irony of this movie is that it has really, really good world building, uh, that it is kind of disinterested in, like, I think that this movie does more work to be an interesting and compelling sci-fi story with like a really operable and interesting class metaphor um, and um, sort of stakes and environmentalist stakes and and sort of class stakes and um, Marxist stakes that that it completely just sort of like um, gestures at until it can get back to being the Arnold movie that it is to the point where it sort of is looking askance at the, at the idea of the sort of whole social program of classic science fiction um, in a way that, that doesn't detract from those themes. Like I think that those themes are, are here in this movie. Um, But, but that, that there's a tension between them uh, on the page and them in the directorials, our director's vision, but that tension is itself, um, intentional uh in a, in a way that that fascinates me and that makes this movie really sophisticated um su- sort of surprisingly yeah uh harry i agree with you i think um mostly just jumping in to say that uh like going off of you know the past couple of years when i would think about this movie coming back to it i think i was expecting something that did lean into um you know class politics or any semblance of, you know, grander, grander thematic messages beyond, uh, you know, the, the Arnie of it all, um, and lean more into what we've come to expect from, from Paul Verhoeven. Uh, and, and to be fair, uh, I did get a sense of that early. The, um, I guess the limited, um, uh, my limited experience with him, I think I've only seen his, his most popular movies once or twice a piece. Um, we, the, we get a sense of world building from not direct conversations with characters, usually um, just background uh, chatter, whether it's the radio or, or the television. I feel like there's a lot of that early um, and that gives us all the details we need to become familiar with, uh, you know, what's um, you know, the, you know, the class politics and everything else that the movie, uh, like you said, Harry gestures at uh, later on before we can, you know, turn around and, and get back to, what is ostensibly, uh, you know, a sci-fi film at heart. I think too, just like aside from the opening sequence with um, the the news report on the screen, is that at the very base level of this movie, it's about a blue-collar guy that wants to escape his life, and I think yeah. that that's that's what permeates through the whole movie. And that essentially, the the thing that carries the plot forward is this lower class under the heel of this corporation authoritarian um uh ghoul i guess you could say and um even even as he's going through and escaping like you see that scene in um when he first wraps the the wet towel around his head and he's trying to escape through uh excuse me, I, I might get, be getting my scenes mixed up but essentially when he's on the uh, of the run initially and he's going up the escalator and that scene is so bloody when they're just like in, indiscriminately firing on all these um, innocent bystanders and Arnold's using that guy as a, as a human shield overtly. So like to the oh, <laughs> way over the top, it's just, it's just, yeah. I, I think it's just um, indicative of how um, 
of how the the lower class or the average person is supposed to be viewed through this movie. Yeah, I I agree. That I always laugh at that scene. It's like it's the Verhoeven thing, right? Where you you can't help but laugh even though the whole thing is so incredibly like vile. That that scene not only like the guys use as a meat shield for like 30 bullets, but once he's tossed to the ground, the bad guys just trample all over his body. I mean, even the good guys trampling over people, but the bad guys just trample all over his body. Uh, I I I find myself like really <laughs> I don't know. I'm divided about whether or not in those scenes it works, but it's definitely like impactful and impressive when it's happening. <laughs> yeah. And I think that maybe goes back to what we were talking about with the, the conscious stylistic choices. Like this movie can be a lot, right? Like really frequently um, the, like that, that escalator shootout, um, a taxi cab malfunctions and goes up in flames uh, for for no apparent reason, there's a lot of spectacle uh, built into into scenes like that. Um, well, and and like like Logan said, like at at the heart of this story is a completely operable, completely successful, in my opinion, uh, story about like working class solidarity and and coming to class consciousness. Right? Like uh, Dennis Quaid. It turns out, spoilers at the end of this movie, he he was a um, a double agent sort of like de- reprogrammed spy f- uh, for the um the corporation that he was working for it turns out he's best friends with the uh the leader of the corporation and he was sent into this resistance movement undercover as a, as a double agent to lead them to uh the leader Quado so that he could kill Quado or so the corporation could kill Quado and then Quaid was going to go back but uh after being programmed and and living the experience of a working class person and empathizing with the resistance movement around him without even realizing it, he became that person instead of the other person that he was. So like the whole, like I said, like the, the, the whole metaphor of this movie completely works and I'm sure it works in Philip K. Dick's short story in a, in a straightforward way. Right. Which is that like, like Quato said, like your actions define you. And like, it turns out that, that there is no sort of like inherent self. It's just the self that, that you become and that you step into the role of and all of that. And all of that works. It, it just isn't the movie that this is on the, like on the film. Right. Which is, which is what makes it so interesting and sophisticated to me is that Paul Verhoeven saw all of that and he understood all of that and he could have made that movie and he chose to make this movie instead. And I'm really interested in unpacking why it is he chose to do that. I, I agree. I think, I think it's like the, uh, the central thesis of the movie. Uh, it can be kind of summed up in the fact that, I mean, imagine being, Arnold Schwarzenegger and having his physique and, uh, and waking up next to Sharon stone and then going to work and seeing that all of your coworkers look like the guy who's one of his coworkers in that movie and thinking like, and thinking that that's normal (laughs) and thinking that you are like the everyday man, that you are the average guy. You're just trying to survive. Like, that the that uh dissonance that only become that only has like a story reason later on it's kind of like i don't know kind of like when a video game tries to address its um it's like narrative dissonance right between when in a cutscene when somebody's shot and they and they're dead versus in a in the game where they're shot and you know they keep standing it's like that uh but but that sort of reconciled right because arnie as a character 
uh, Arnie as a person becomes one with Arnie as a character because he is, he's a, you know, double agent for the bad guys. He's uh, essentially a, a henchman, a superior henchman to Michael Ironside. I, I just love how it doesn't like the disconnect between uh, who Arnie thinks he is and who he actually is, is, is apparent through like his acting, his physicality and, and like every other element of the movie's making until that turning point where we start to realize that he's not who he said that who he thinks he is. And then even who he's being told he is by himself, by a, by a past version of himself, isn't even who he thinks he is. It's, it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around, but I think that it ends up working. Um, really quick and entirely unrelated. I didn't want us to bypass the fact that Harry referred to Arnie's character as Dennis Quaid, uh, who I somehow, uh, have more oh trouble. God. I somehow have more trouble visualizing him as a working class hero That's than Arnold incredible. Schwarzenegger for the record. It's, Doug- it's Douglas Quaid, right? Yes. Yeah. Douglas <laughs> Quaid. Sorry. I didn't even realize I did that. I bet, I mean, Dennis Quaid is, would be an easier name for Arnie to say. Uh, Douglas Quaid is an uncomfortable juxtaposition of, of consonants, uh, IMO. Um, I, and, and Jason, to speak to your point, like, I think it, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it is, it is successful, except that it's not. But I think that, that it's not successful deliberately. Like, I really think that this movie is, its irony goes further than a lot of ironic movies do. Um, and that's sort of my big takeaway from this movie is that like, like sort of meta self-aware winking movies, they never go far enough because they never have the strength of their convictions to actually satirize what they're doing. They always end up becoming a conventional movie. This movie doesn't like it is, it is comfortable to stand in tension with itself because like the funny thing about this movie is that like, it's making this point, right? That, that there is no that there is no um, essential self in that, like, you know, in a world where your, your upbringing and your um, memories themselves or your history of, of who you are is also decentralized and also unknowable, then it actually becomes the, the person that you strive to be is, is who you are, or, or you have more agency in your self-determination. And, and then this movie, everything about it is standing at cross purposes with that, where it's like, well, but actually he's always Arnold Schwarzenegger. And this is always a hilarious action movie because anything that he is a part of that he exists in is that, and there is no escaping from that. And like that, that's a, that's a message that is at fundamental cross purpose with, with the ostensible message on the page of this movie. But this movie sort of does a synthesis of both of those ideas into what it is. Uh, and that's what makes it a perfect sort of irony movie to me. Whereas other irony movies fall short. Yeah. I think you're getting it like at really the core of what Arnie's like place in the movie is for me, how it is like itself, the, the casting of Arnie though ostensibly like appropriate because he's an action hero is like has very narrative purposes. Um, I, I want to turn the conversation toward uh, sort of like, I guess the last third of the movie at which point we reveal, I guess I'd pinpointed around the time when Quato like uh, when, when he meets Quato and when uh, he, you know, finds out that there's technology on this planet to make it inhabitable for all. And that the corporation is stimming attempts that the whole re- resistance is built on getting to that reactor. Uh, I might be screwing up elements of the plot. P- people who've seen it more than me, feel free to correct me. Uh, but at that point it sort of becomes, it, it keeps its main story grounded while showing you like, while blowing up the world, right? Like expanding it to these ancient alien civilizations that, 
had planned for this uh, whole planet to be inhabitable. And, uh, and then it's, but like its main story, its idea of like class politics and the way that it's using like corporate force to, uh, to beat down the little guy, it like stays pretty true through that, through the end, even as like the grander themes or grander story bits, I guess, come into play. That reminds me of, um, one of the bigger questions that last night's viewing raised for me that I guess I hadn't really considered before was, you know, they're, when he's, when he has that vision with Quato and they're, they like go through the ancient mines and Cohagen's like, what is this? Um, million years old, half a million years old. Um, so this was obviously there well before anyone had tried to colonize Mars. My question is if they went through the trouble of building these mines and like a handy dandy switch, why didn't they just turn it on? A great question. I, I assume that might be explained in Philip Dick's novel. I, I guess I'd like to think that they were like a benevolent race and that they didn't need it themselves and maybe wanted to build it for like future generations of people, unless there's some element of lore that I'm not considering. That's sort of what I tell myself to get over that, <laughs> that plot hump. Well, and, and Cohagen has that line where he says that it was just going to kill everybody on Mars and that's why they didn't turn it on. But that is revealed to be an obvious lie. And so I maybe the, the aliens thought that was true or something and everybody thought that was true, but that doesn't seem likely. So you're right. Like there's, there's not an easy answer. I like that you brought it up though, because it does like the whole, the plot sort of hinges on that, right? Of, uh, of once this story gets built out into a bigger idea, that's sort of like the, one of the hinging questions. Um, I guess while we're, while we're on it, I mean, does anybody else have any like other thoughts about the way that this that this story, like within the last thirty minutes, probably really blows up its main, it, like its whole world? Uh, it really expands the scope, but while keeping it very centered on class politics. Uh, I, I guess we should lay the groundwork uh, that the reason uh, that the corporation doesn't want to. Uh, or, or is at war at all with the resistance is over the natural resource of oxygen, which they're able to clearly control. They use it against uh, Quaid later on in the movie to like incentivize him to give himself up because they'll turn off oxygen to the to the uh, I forget it's the v Venus Ward or whatever they call it Venusville Venusville um, yep Venusville uh, where the mutated people are where the lower class people are. Uh, sort of the quote unquote seedier parts of town. Um, and then once that actually, once like, again, spoiler alert, once Arnie is able to, uh, you know, activate the reactor and release oxygen into the atmosphere, uh, it's sort of like, it's sort of a threat at that point to the, to the upper class. Like it's shown in a very like weird Alfred Hitchcock way to be like a, an explosive fog that comes into uh, not attack, but like to disrupt the way of life of the of, of the upper class. I, I don't know. I'm just spitballing at that point. But like any any larger any thoughts about how this movie does that? Because up, up until that point, it's very much about one guy's story and how he's a runner between two different factions. And then eventually, it's like, oh, this this much more monumental reason, this much more like with much bigger stakes, is the reason behind the whole conflict. Uh. Just that, uh, I think Cody, you mentioned that this movie can be a lot so much. Um, and we had talked about while we were watching it, how plotted this movie is like, this is a, this is an almost absurdly plot centric movie. Uh, there are like three distinct 
paradigm shifts of who the main character himself is, much less what he's doing or uh, what his real goals and motivations are, um, and even what the what the resistance movement is all about or who they really are. This this is a movie that that packs twists really strategically and unfolds in that manner really strategically where it's like uh you you don't really learn what the real stakes are until the very end of the movie right jason like you had said um but it's still it it works really well like for for all of the thematic tension that is in this movie that doesn't translate to tension in the plotting or characterization in fact i think that this movie is so comfortable to watch and pay attention to and understand despite all of those things um, to the, to the point where I wasn't bothered at all by the, the unfolding of massive stakes in that way. And it felt like just a natural extension of what had been going on up to that point. Um, yeah. And if on paper it, it wasn't, it, it just like, it works really masterfully for me in that way. Yeah. I, it's kind of like I was saying earlier how like I almost miss whenever I'm watching this movie, I almost miss the twist from uh, like, like grounded. I, I forget what the term is, but like hard sci-fi into more of a high fantasy sci-fi type thing. I almost miss it every time I'm watching this movie because you're right. It does like it. It's so it's, it's very densely plotted, but I think pretty well paced to get there. Um, somebody like Logan, who's had, like double digit viewings of this film. Do you find that there are moments that like stick out to you as um, like particularly, I don't know, dragging or like big stretches, big leaps that you have to make to like, uh, I guess narratively connect it. I, I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly, but like any, any moments you, when you're watching the movie and you're like, well, am I really supposed to believe that? Is that stretching my, credulity for of this moment or is it all pretty smooth you know time after time um i mean that's a good question i think i think there are parts that that drag i actually was a little surprised to when i first started to find that it, the runtime is only an hour 50 i assumed that it was over two hours um but there are times when they're trying to establish quaid's backstory and like if it's the first time you're seeing it you're questioning whether or not like what is true and what is not true. And there are certain aspects like when he's first in um, the last resort and things like that, that I thought could have been sped up. I can't point to one thing in particular, but that's kind of like the, the, ch the chunk of the movie that I feel like maybe slows down a little bit. Um, yeah. It's funny. To, it's funny to think back on uh, like the scene where he confronts himself in the briefcase uh, and he's talking to Hauser. And um, I guess that scene <laughs> I only bring it up because I can remember it. Uh, I remember what it looks like. I guess we're talking again about like, it's a movie of moments, right? Like things, visuals that you remember lines that you remember. Um, and that scene like has a lot of imagery. I remember, I remember like the rat and stuff. It was very, they're very wise to keep that scene pretty light with the, with like the rat that keeps confusing everybody and how they end up exploding him at the end. Uh, but in that, like, I don't remember the exact bits of plot that are revealed in that scene because it is just like so much in that, like, that's a pretty long scene. That's a number of minutes that could probably have been, I don't know, half as long and get through as effectively, but not as impactfully, not as like, not with like the imagery and the, uh, like the thing that he's got to pull out of his nose and, uh, all the other nonsense shit that happens in that scene. If it didn't have those things, it wouldn't be as memorable, I guess. 
Well, and, and the movie does the brilliant thing, right? We're like we're we're talking about straining credulity, but but the movie has a safeguard for that, which is that in the first act when he goes into recall, they explain exactly what the plot of the movie is going to be to him <laughs> directly. They're like, "Well, you're going to save the day, and you're going to get the girl, and you're you're going to stop the enemy's super weapon or whatever they say." That's not what they say, but you get the idea. And then they go ahead and do that. And it, it's so funny that that like you had said, uh, Jason, especially in the third act, when they introduced the idea that there are aliens and that there was an advanced society that now that uh, Arnold has to save himself. It's like, yeah, of course there is. Like, of course, this super agent has to, like, make the final decision to save all of Mars by utilizing this ancient super technology, because like that is the the silly sci fi uh, secret agent plot that that we're ready for and that we don't even think is maybe really happening because of the other framing device of this movie which is that this could all be a dream right and so like there's another um to use cody's terminology like a layering happening there that that makes all of those plot points sit funny right all for a measly 30 credits Uh, I like, I think the, we, we talked about this. We watched this, um, most recently via discord. So we were all kind of watching it together during quarantine. Uh, but how that, the scene of, um, of the Johnny cab, how it freaks out after it's, uh, denied payment <laughs> and how, like originally watching that movie, I figured it was just like, it's circuits are, uh, or it's, it's, it's circuits are fried, you know, it's short circuiting, uh, and it just doesn't know what it's doing. But like, I forget who brought up that it's probably like specifically programmed to attack the person who did who didn't pay i just like that tiny little bit of story uh, and world building there um so so the last uh the last question i have i guess um is is how this movie is situated in uh paul verhoven's filmography um aaron you and i have both talked about our small misgivings with uh a movie like starship troopers so sorry I, if i'm pissing have- off any giant I have no misgivings with Starship Troopers. I just think that it is by doing what it's doing. It is kind of a boring film at times, um, which this film avoids, I think. Right. And I'm so I guess I'm, I'm interested in that because like, I guess I do have some misgivings with Starship Troopers, which is that it's similar to yours, just that it's, it's irony is so pure that it kind of just becomes like a, um, I guess maybe not boring or just like nihilistic movie. Um, Whereas this movie's like class metaphors that like, that actually like, like things aren't a dream, right? Like you can be this person and you can do these things. They kind of still sing for me despite, or maybe because of the layering of irony. So I'm, I'm interested in how that came across to you guys and, and how he achieved that and maybe didn't achieve it elsewhere, or maybe he did and I missed it elsewhere. But how do you all feel about that? I think part of it is that what he's satirizing here is, you know, he, he's satirizing action films and sci-fi movies. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I think there's digs here at uh, Hollywood's, you know, uh, desire to, to show violence and sexuality and whatnot. Um, but I think what what he's satirizing is kind of a less terrible thing than what he's satirizing in Starship Troopers. Um, what he what he's what he's taking aim at in that film is kind of the worst aspects of American um, imperialism, uh, foreign policy, how that translates to entertainment. Um, there's some of that here, but but it's, you know, this is less of a nihilistic film because what it's looking at is less nihilistic as well, That's I a guess. Good point. Um, 
yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think Starship Troopers is probably a better film than this, but this is definitely an easier and probably more enjoyable watch. Um, Starship Troopers, you know, that's another, I want to say two hour long. That's actually more than two hours. That's 129 minutes. Um, that starts dragging halfway through, you know, um, this maybe starts dragging in the last 20 minutes or so. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a uh, easier pill to swallow, I think. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has pay- piggybacks on that, but I was just going to move the conversation to, we like to talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger's lines in, in movies where he doesn't have them, but this one's kind of, it's not like his most one-liner riddled movie, but it definitely has a few. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to open the floor to, uh, to your favorites or any, any that stick out. I will say, I think earlier in this, we talked about kind of like the evolution of Arnold as an actor. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I could just be short-sighted here, but it feels like this movie was maybe the jumping off point to him becoming known for his one-liners. I mean, Terminator had, you know, Asa La Vista and whatnot, but like, see you at the party, Richter, as he's throwing off this man's severed arms is maybe <laughs> one of my favorite Arnold lines in all of his movies. And then I think from then on, he just really becomes known for them. It. You're probably right. Uh, did Commando come at before or after this? Because Commando's pretty. Okay. Oh wow! Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm all screwed up well, on the well, timeline then. N- no, no, but like by the same token, it feels like each movie that you add to his filmography, you're just like it's just a snowball, right? Like it, he becomes better and better known for those one-liners. I mean, I think I think what it is 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 potentially that like uh, Logan's not necessarily wrong. Uh, it's just that like you're already waiting for him. Like this this is a movie that that knows that you're waiting for one-liners, and so it delivers. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, screw you. I think is the that was the <laughs> that's such like a classic Arnie one that it's so obvious. Um, you know, see what the party my- director is probably actually better, but. Yeah, my my mom doesn't really even watch action movies too much, but I think the first time I saw this, she was around, so it was a fun watching experience. And even she left at the "screw you" joke at at that one liner, which I found that's a very fond memory for me. Is that she actually latched onto that, being a kind of a crude joke in a very violent moment of this really pretty, I won't say mature, but pretty inappropriate movie. Uh, yeah, I don't know, just free associating the memory. Uh, I want to hear. I want to hear Cody's because I have two favorite one-liners, and I don't want to take one of his. Um, I think if, if we're, I'm going off of the line that I think elicited the most joy for me, and it's not even really a one-liner. It was uh, in the, I guess, the first of the two climactic uh, engagements or Earth fights, um, a big shootout with Quaid and uh, Molina versus a whole shitload of Cohagans you know, cronies, uh, and Quaid's playing with a, uh, a duplicator where a hologram doppelganger of him is out and about causing confusion. And he's fucking, fucking with these guys, uh, and using that to, you know, bring them to their, their doom. Um, after the viewer becomes accustomed to what they're, what they're doing, uh, Arnie just walks out into the middle of a group of people and starts laughing and he goes, you think this is the real Quaid? It is. And then he just shoots them all. Um, again, not really a one-liner, but uh, if we're talking about the Arnie line that made that me happy. That was one of my two. Oh, okay, sorry. So I'm glad. No, no, I'm glad that you got to uh, do that one. That's I love that line. It's so funny. It's so funny that in that little shootout, they find every permutation of ways to use that hologram generator. Like it's so per. It's such a perfect action scene. Oh yeah. Um, my favorite one-liner is uh, when um, Sharon Stone's character 
uh, has a gun to her head and, and she goes, uh, baby, you can't do this to me. We're married. And then, of course, Arnold blows her away and, and he goes, consider this our divorce. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the other one that comes to mind or the one that I always look forward to isn't even that great of a one. It's probably like in the lower tier of all the ones that we've already discussed. But there's something I really enjoy about when he's first uh, Arnold's first in the, the last resort and he's going up the stairs with um Melina and Dean Norris shout out Dean Norris who is also that's a that's a Verhoeven connection he's in Starship Troopers um but oh shit he was also in Starship Troopers yeah oh damn Um, because Michael Ironside is also in Starship Troopers mm -hmm. yeah I forgot that all kinds of overlap in these movies um but when (laughs) when he's going up the stairs Dean Norris's just like mutant character stops him he's like you got a lot of nerve showing your face around here and arnold just goes look who's talking it's really not even that great of a one-liner but i just great yeah i love that i love that line uh well because because uh dean norris's character is a mutant so his face is all fucked up right so it's like like kind of a shitty thing to say in fact but it's very funny yeah given the history there it kind of makes sense um are we uh are we on to the section about uh somebody's noties do we have some noties this time is it time for uh oh wait 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 wait. do we need to introduce the concept of cody's noties i think we should uh so cody takes notes during the movie and then we read them on here that's the whole concept pretty self-explanatory and and it's called (laughs) cody's noties noties you should really come up with a theme song for it Hey, we've that's got three, four, it. we got like four, okay. Cody's noties. That's Listen it. That's to any pretty episode much of Sister, Sister, and you have the theme song. <laughs> hey, don't give it away. <laughs> oh, sorry. Our trade secrets, no. <laughs> um, thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. Uh, today's noties are, uh, I'm going to jump back. I already alluded to very briefly the, uh, the tennis sequence uh, that Sharon Stone was taking part in for uh, a few moments uh, early in the first act. Um, I got wondering about something uh off the beaten track as i sometimes do the uh, the tennis pro who is in the scene teaching sharon stone i had a flickering thought of is this just some random whomever that they picked up to because it didn't look like they were doing anything too elaborate they were doing like slow motion uh serves um anybody could realistically do that um not necessarily the case here um so i wanted to spend uh, just a couple of minutes shouting out linda howell uh, a former U.S. pro tennis player who played the role of that uh, hologram tennis professional in that scene. Um, just real quick uh, biography uh, of her. In 1982, she uh, joined a San Diego State's tennis team, and I'm not too confident about how this worked back then, uh, but from what I can tell, you could play tennis uh, at the NCAA level um, at this point in time, while also dabbling in the pro circuit. Um, so that's kind of what she was doing. Um, in 1984, uh, as far as I can tell, that's when it really, not, I'm using air quotes for takeoff, but I mean, she's a professional athlete. Um, so these are all notable accomplishments. Uh, in the NCAA doubles uh, tournament, like the final tournament, she made it to the semifinals with her partner, uh, Cynthia McGregor, who also went on to play professional tennis. Um, sadly, she's no longer with us, um, but shout out to her as well. Uh, also in 84, um, Linda uh, Howell made it to her first Grand Slam tournament, the U.S. Open. Uh, she lost in the first round. Uh, and then the, the next major she didn't qualify for, which was the Australian Open, but in a lead-up tournament, she, um, she went three sets with uh, Steffi Graf, who's one of the best tennis players ever. Um, going three sets uh, it indicates just 
I'm not going to get into the scoring mechanics of tennis. Um, but like somebody winning in straight sets means that there was uh, less of a fight. Um, so you it basically um, Powell forced Steffi Graf to play best two out of three sets, which is really cool. Um, that's a tremendous accomplishment. And then in '85, uh, it, she um, Powell was in the main draw for women's doubles and mixed doubles. At, uh, at Wimbledon, which is another Grand Slam tournament. Uh, and she, from what I can tell, she lost in the first round uh, of those as well. Now, I know what you all uh, are thinking, and um, you're asking yourselves, where is Linda Howell now? Uh, my research leads me to uh, the city or town of Hobbs, New Mexico, where uh, she's currently residing, and she is the head PGA professional and general manager at Rockwind Community Links Golf Course. Um, so shout out uh, to Linda Holly. Holy Howell. shit, You're, Cody. This yeah. is like You're, some fucking... Do you have her social security Yeah, number? what the fuck, man? Uh, yeah, Jason, you can edit this out later, but it's... And there you have it. Um, so yeah, that's I have, great. I've stolen her identity now. Thank you. Yeah, no, Cody, it's Cody's investigation ease. More like her, I'm not gonna lie. Her Wikipedia article was way more helpful than I thought it would be. Um, but I'm glad that she... Uh, had she has some accolades uh, to her name, not just for the purposes of this bit, but also those are a lot of things that not a lot of people do in a lifetime. And all of that, you know, coming from a, a 10 second, basically a cameo in a Paul Verhoeven movie, which is super cool. It's wild. Do you think also knew her the street that she grew up on and her mother, mother's uh, maiden name? That was right. I, I assume Jason will cut all that out later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I spent 35 minutes talking about Linda Howell. Uh, I'm really glad Jason can go back with the magic of editing and call yeah. this out. Um, that might be a bonus episode in the future. Um, you know, we'll do a mini series on her, but uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, do you think that that Sharon Stone needed any coaching for that one scene of uh, faking tennis? Uh, great question uh what was her form cody i i mean not i mean not great and the thing is you know i'm uh i'm a tennis was uh my 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 prime my primary sport growing up i will also be the first to to shit on it anything you do in tennis slow motion is not going to look all that great or coordinated um so she's fighting a losing battle there my one regret about this movie is that nobody has put uh, a soundboard together containing Arnold Schwarzenegger saying hetero. That's one of life's greatest crimes. I think uh, Logan wanted to say something. I was uh, just going to, yeah, I was just going to say um, maybe an addendum to Cody's noties might be Logie's noties. Um, oh, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Can, can we, can we say like Logan's lo- loggies or something like that? Like a log you're keeping. You can call it whatever Logan's you want. Slogans. Logan slogans. There oh, you go. Hey, hey. I was just going to say, I mentioned at the top of this um, that I found a couple connections to twins. Would anybody be interested in knowing what they are? So Hell yeah. So the first one um, I noticed, and this is actually pretty dumb, but um, when Arnold first gets <laughs> jumped in the stairwell by his uh, by Harry, his construction coworker, there's a part where both of his arms are grabbed behind him. And he does like a double kick and incapacitates two people. Well, he does that exact same move in the bar scene in um, uh, in Twins when some some goons come and uh, threaten their girlfriends. Same exact move, same exact look. Um, and then um, the the other connection was the man uh, who 
I don't, was he Quato or was he like inhabitate, like was Quato inhabiting him? Like a, like uh, a, I can't remember. Like a Quirrell, well, it's, uh, it's Voldemort there. kind of thing? Yeah, it's it's his brother, his brother George. Yeah. Right. It's actually yeah. Quato and his brother George. Well, so, the, yeah. the actor, Marshall Bell, I looked up his name, Marshall Bell, he's also the bad guy, the assassin um, in Twins. Those are my two connections. Shit, that's two more connections than I thought this movie would have to twins. Yeah, well, you're <laughs> for, fucking with the best. For, for those here who have seen twins, would you recommend it? I haven't seen it. I love twins. I, I think it's great. I do too. I, I really like twins. It's not by any means like a great movie, but it's enjoyable, especially with Danny DeVito. Yeah, Danny DeVito is Arnold Schwarzenegger's twin. Yeah. Uh, that's, all, that's all you really need to know about that movie. They refer to him oh, as genetic. They refer to Danny DeVito as genetic detritus. <laughs> okay, Ouch. you know what? I'm adding this to my letterbox watch list right now. Genetic detritus is like A, a John Waters movie, and B, uh, one of the best names for a band ever. <laughs> uh, well, I think that might do it for us and for Total Recall. Uh, yeah, if, do we have recommendations? Sorry to interrupt you, Jason. Oh, hell, I, I don't know. The 2012 Total Recall? That's just about it. Hmm. I might have to revisit it. The only time I ever saw it was in the theater and I just had way too high of hopes for it. Well, like you've got, is it uh, Colin Farrell? Yeah. In it? Yeah. Like, come on. Really? You're I think put Colin Farrell in a, will in a, in a Arnold Schwarzenegger role. I will say, I think does Bill Nye play Cohagen? Yeah, that's, that would good. be, that'd uh, be pretty Bill, good casting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Bopped over to the the Wikipedia page for the remake. And from what I could tell, Bill Nighy plays the leader of the resistance, so it's not necessarily a, a Quato type role. He's Bill Nighy as Matthias, the leader of the resistance. Which I don't know. I mean, also sounds kind of cool. Maybe. Yeah, but I I think like nail on the head would have been Bill Nighy as as Cohagen. That would have been perfect. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I recommend that you play the Splinter Cell series of video games for the PlayStation uh, 2, Xbox, and GameCube, uh, featuring, you guessed it, Michael Ironside, the voice talents of Michael Ironside as uh, Special Agent Sam Fisher with Third Echelon, uh, a division of the U.S. government and military uh, force. I, uh, I, I, Yeah, if you want to hear more of his voice, that's where you hear it. That's where you go. You know what, Jason? I was gonna. I I'm sorry that I said Jesus Christ like that because I was gonna accuse you of being too much on your bullshit. But the two top recommendations that I write de- wrote down were Final Fantasy VII and Cowboy Bebop. This is not very Cowboy Bebop, but it is very Final uh, it Fantasy. It is VII. actually be- because uh. much like much like Spike himself, the main character in this can't help but escape the genre that he is in even if it, it's not necessarily a perfect fit for who he feels he is as a person anymore. I, so Logan, actually it's I, very I similar. think we might disagree that that qualifies it, but I'm willing to, I'm willing to trust you on that one. Make, makes you think though, huh? Log- yeah, Logan bit. feels right at home. We're talking about Japanese video games and final fantasy and, uh, and, and cowboy bebop. Is this where um, I interject with, uh, my slipknot plug? Yeah. This oh, is where yeah. you can. Yeah. I mean, do it. Just listen to Slipknot. That's my recommendation. Listen to Slipknot. Dude. <laughs> oh, that's the, I thought there was a tie-in here. There's not a tie-in. Well, it's it's an old thing between me and Jason. You can explain it's, it, Jason. It's the it's the stuff of myth. We don't need to go into it on here. <laughs> this right. is 
this is a a tale as old as time. Uh, yeah. If there are any, I, I I guess I didn't really think about related watching. This kind of a singular movie to me. Like it, it shares DNA with other Verhoeven films and later on in Arnie's career and like a lot of cinema that followed it. But honestly, when I'm watching Total Recall, I, all I want to be watching, all I'm thinking about watching is Total Recall. So, uh, to that end, I guess I'm gonna pull the plug on this episode. Uh, no more recall uh, of. I don't know. It's getting late. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. Excuse to- me. Let the record show that it is two minutes to eight p.m. It is seven fifty-eight p.m. And I am you know, a sleepy boy. boy. It's about time to get in bed. A cup of warm uh, milk for Jason. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've never strawberry had milk. four. I've never had four people. Oh, strawberry milk. I've never had <laughs> you. I'm going to go make a cup of tea decaf, of course, not the real stuff. It's a little too late for me. You know, I don't drink coffee after, you know, 2 or 3 p.m. So I literally drank a cup of coffee before we started recording. Uh, this has been an episode of Try Love about Total Recall. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our guest, Logan, for being on again. Can you drop your uh, your at real quick, Logan? Yes, it's you can find me on Twitter at, at Mr. Leviathan. That's M.R. Leviathan. And thank you guys so much for having me on. This was a blast. Yeah, Thanks, of course. That was great. I'm I'm so glad we got you on. I know I know that I know one other movie that we could probably get you on uh if we lined up the timing right and if we like put time into thinking about it. And that's Rear Window. What what's another movie that you think you know well enough, like well enough and have like enough to say about that you would be be comfortable being on a podcast about? Realistically, there are quite a few and I probably haven't I've probably spurned your invitations before just cuz I'm a dick, but um <laughs> I can't, King, if, shit. If, if if you guys have jason you probably know my um you taste probably better than anyone but if you got a movie coming down the pipeline that you think that i would be into just let me know and i'll let you know definitely i am gonna milk this for all it's worth now that we're in we're in it's like a parasite you hooked me uh, if we did an episode well we've already done an episode on parasite weirdly enough um Hey, you're from Rochester, Logan, right? I Did am. You, have you ever been to uh, Have you ever been to Grey Duck Theater? No, I feel like that's a new creation that I is. Yeah, been, it's only about a year old. I was going to say, yeah, I don't even think I've been to Rochester in a year. So, uh, I don't mean to take us way too far off point, but uh, but it's relevant. We've we we know the guy who runs that, so it might be fun. God, I, I I'm still my brain is not in quarantine, but my body is. Uh, I would love to go there and see a movie with y'all sometime. Yeah, that'd, uh, that'd be great. Okay, so this has been uh, an episode about Total Recall. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. You can find the podcast we make, Try Love Pod or Try Love Jesus at uh, Try Love Podcast on Twitter. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. Uh, go to the Trilon's website. There are a lot of ways uh, in the downtime. They've been closed for a few weeks, uh, going on I think better part of a month actually, uh, as part of uh, social distancing and quarantine rules. Um, and uh, and I know that they could really use the support. So go to the Trilons website, find a way to support them. You can buy uh, discount cards for movies once they start, once they start showing again, uh, or you can just make a donation out of the goodness of your heart. Um, and uh, and I encourage you to do that. Again, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendo Uh Buy Trilon discount cards so we can all see movies together once uh, this is all over. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore bh. 
Uh, you can also follow their weekly film recommendations. Um, they, they put those out every week in a new newsletter. They've been getting some other repertory cinemas to contribute their own um, choices these past weeks through uh, videos. They're really cool. John uh, Moret does a really great job with those. Um, so you should do that. Uh, I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. I have no recommendations other than what Cody and Harry said, but uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. See you at the party, Richter.